Good morning, church. Uh, glad you're either here with us in the building or tuning in online. We got some great news this week. Uh, my son Tosh got a scan this past week, and the doctors say there's only a trace of cancer left. So as planned, he's going in for his fourth cycle, but it's going to be his fourth and final cycle this Tuesday, and the doctors believe that it's going to finish off all the cancer, and he's going to be uh, just fine. So March 1st, he'll get out of the hospital, and uh, he'll be cancer-free. So we're still praying that that's the continued diagnosis. God continues to work, and we're just so excited. We're so thankful for all your prayers through all this and for all your grace. I'm also excited because next Sunday, February 28th, I will be back in the church preaching here live. I'm so excited to see all of you. So excited to be in the fellowship of the believers. So continue to pray for us. Thank you for everything. I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to get right into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. We're thankful for everything you've done in our lives and, and through this church and through all the people that are praying people here that uh, pray for us and pray for one another. And we're just so thankful, Lord, that we can come together and hear your word and lift your name in praises. So I pray now that as we go into this final message of Psalms of Encouragement, I pray, Lord, that our hearts are encouraged. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for the past seven weeks, we've been looking at Psalms of Encouragement, and the purpose was to encourage our hearts for the new year. 2020 was a tough year. 2021 has not proven to be that much better, like we kind of figured, but we still need encouragement, and we always will need encouragement, and we can look to the Lord for encouragement. So our final Psalm is going to be Psalm 121. The theologian Matthew Henry states about this psalm. He says, some call this psalm a soldier's psalm offered for protection during battle. Others call this psalm a traveler's psalm of someone being away from the safety of home. So written, this psalm was written by David, and it can be either that soldier's psalm or it can be a traveler's psalm, or any situation a person is in that they feel that they need help. So Psalm 121 actually poses a question that all of us really need to answer, and here it is in verse 1. He says this, I lift my eyes up to the hills, from where does my help come from. So the question we're going to deal with today is, where does my help come from? Where does my help come from? So the answer to this can vary depending on what you need help with, right? So when we need help, the wise thing to do is look for people that are capable of helping us in the area that we need help. So we want to, the wise thing to do is look for someone that could help us in the area in which we need help. So for instance, if you're looking for guidance on what to do with your finances, you're, you're not going to ask an unsuccessful person that has no work ethic. You're going to look for a successful person that has a good work ethic. If you're looking for diet and fitness help, you don't want to go to someone who's out of shape and eats junk food. You want to go to someone who's fit and eats well. 
and takes their fitness seriously. If you're looking for marital help, you don't want to look for someone that has a handful of failed marriages. You want to ask a person that's either happily married or a person that is still married to the same person and work through maybe some of the issues that you're going through in your marriage. If you're looking for parental help, you don't want to ask a person that has a bunch of wayward children. You want to ask a person that has well-behaved children or adult children that are walking with the Lord. If you're having a health problem, you don't want to ask Google, okay? You want to go to the doctor. So if you're, if you're looking for help with a sport or a hobby, something as simple as that, you don't want to ask a person that's not good at it or doesn't have anything to do with it. You want to ask someone who has experience with that sport or hobby and excels in that sport or hobby. So the list can go on and on. The list can go on and on. But normally, help comes from someone who is equipped to help. Normally, help comes from someone who is equipped to help. But at some point, the help we all need is something no person can give. Okay, The help we all need in life is something that no person can give. But people can help by showing us the one that can help us. Okay, People can help by showing us the one that actually can help us help us. That is what the psalmist David does here in Psalm 121. And he does that by using his, himself as an example. So you see, we could tell people where help comes from, but we can show them by our example of that's where we go for help. So if we're telling someone about the Lord, that's good. But if we're showing them by actually living a life that goes to the Lord for help, that's actually going to demand them to listen and observe. And that's exactly what David did with his life. So he answers this question by saying this, my help comes from the Lord. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. So what is he talking about? Well, if he's traveling and in a place he knows no one and he is scared, he's saying, well, I turn to the Lord. I'm alone. I'm scared. I don't know anybody. I turn to the Lord. If he's, if he's a soldier in battle or a king leading soldiers in battle and the battle's kind of looking bleak, he's saying, you know what? I look to the Lord for help because you know, if I compare my army to someone else's army, to the one we're going up against, the future is looking bleak for us, so I'm going to look to the Lord. So as he states, the Lord is where his help is coming from. Now, you may not be, I'm sure you're probably not in a situation like David was. In fact, maybe right now, you're not looking for much help at all. Maybe right now, things are going really well for you. And maybe right now, you're thinking to yourself, I don't really need any help. I, I, I'm good, okay? There's really nothing I need. I'm good. Well, let me tell you this. We all need help, okay? We all need help. And some of you are like, yeah, some more than others. But the truth of the matter is this. We all need help. And the biggest area in which we need help with is with our sin. Is with our sin. And you know what? The world kind of knows about this thing called sin. 
doesn't realize necessarily that they need help, but some do actually realize they need help. And here's what the world does. The world does two things when it's dealing with sin. When I say the world, I mean the unbelieving population. They do two things when it comes to dealing with sin. The first is they dismiss it as if it's no big deal and if it's as, this, as if it is not wrong. Okay, I talked about this in the past weeks. They dismiss it. They, they call things that are sinful not sinful. They dismiss it. This way, there's no accountability. This way, they could just say, I do what I want when I want, and there's no standard. There's no judge. I'm the judge. I'm the jury. I'm the standard. I dismiss it. The second thing they try to do is they try to remedy the sin without the help of God or without going to God. So maybe some of these people realize something is wrong, realize they're doing something wrong, but they leave God out of the equation. They leave God. God doesn't have a remedy for them. They try to remedy it themselves. And the way they do that is they try to do some good deeds as if to cancel out the bad sin. Okay? So this is the way it looks. Like, I do sinful things. So I feel kind of bad about myself. I feel kind of guilty about myself. So in order to make myself feel better, I'm going to go do a few nice things. I'm going to do a few good things. And not only am I going to feel a little bit better about myself, but hopefully if there is some kind of God or creator out there or some, someone who's in charge, they'll say, well, their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds and it'll be all right now. The truth is, we can't dismiss sin because it is a big deal to God. And the truth is, apart from God, there is no real remedy for sin. Okay? We can't dismiss sin because it is a big deal to God. And apart from God, there is no real remedy for our sin. So this is where we come to the gospel. This is where we come to the gospel. You see, we are all sinners. It's true. We are all sinners. We can't dismiss it. And Jesus saw us in our sin. The Father saw us in our sin and gave up his one and only son, Jesus, to die for our sins on the cross, to remedy, okay, to pay the price for our sin. He did that on the cross for us. We see Christ suffer. We know that sin is a big deal to God because Christ was willing to suffer. The Father was willing to give the Son. And the scriptures teach us this, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And then three days later, he rose from the grave to prove that he is God. And the scriptures teach us this, that all who believe will have eternal life. So Jesus is the remedy for the sin that we commit. So now that we know that God is willing to help us with our biggest need, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He's obviously, if he's willing to do that, he's obviously going to be willing to help us with every other need that we have in life. But how do we know that God is capable of helping us with every need? Well, in the rest of this psalm, here's what David's going to do. He's going to prove how he knows that God is capable of helping him. 
So we're going to use four theological terms that describe David's experience with God. So David is going to say all these things, but they're going to be on, under these headings of these four theological terms. And the first is this, God is omnipotent. So the scripture says in verse 121, 2b, who made the heaven and the earth. So the first part was, my help comes from the Lord. Then the second part is, who made the heaven and the earth? So omnipotent means all-powerful. That means that God is all-powerful. He has the most power. Now David knows that everyone can see God's power in his creation, who made the heaven and the earth. Romans 1 also talks about this, that people have no excuse not to admit that there is a God because of creation. We call it general revelation. Here's what I want to do. I know I did a whole series when we were outside, nature declares the glory of God, but I just want to show you a few pictures of God's majestic creation. The first is the Grand Canyon. Look how absolutely beautiful that is. There is no way that that could have happened by chance. The beauty and the contrast in all the colors. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I would love to go and it's on our list of places that we'd like to visit someday. But look how unbelievably beautiful and majestic that scene is. The second is called Iguazu Falls in Argentina. Beautiful waterfalls crafted crafted right into the mountains there, into those cliffs, and the water's just glistening and falling, and a rainbow is happening, and all these beautiful things. There's no way this happened just by chance. The final is Joshua Tree National Park in California. My family went there two years ago. It was absolutely beautiful. This desert scene, and these trees, and rock formations, and the beautiful sky as a backdrop. See, looking at these amazing creations serve as reminders that there is a God, but not only that, he is powerful. And if he's powerful enough to make the heavens and the earth and these beautiful things that we see every day of our lives in some cases, do you think there's something that that powerful God can't help you with? Do you think you're going through a situation that that powerful God cannot help you with? You know, sometimes in certain situations we ask, well, why isn't God helping? Maybe we don't feel the help. Maybe we don't see the help. Maybe right now the help is not coming our way. So sometimes we ask, why isn't God helping? Well, I'll just be very honest with you. I can't answer that in your specific situation. You can't answer that. I can't answer that. Maybe there's no one besides God that can answer that right now. But there are things that God chooses not to do that he has the power to do. Okay? I can't answer for the specific situation, but I know this to be true about God. There are things that God chooses not to do that he actually has the power to do. So then that gives us another question. This is where the skeptics really kind of have a field day. And they'll say something like this. If there is something that God has the power to do, but doesn't do it, doesn't that make him not good? They'll say if there's something that God has the power to do, but decides not to do it or chooses not to do it, doesn't that make him not good? Well, the answer to that is no. 
It actually has to be no because we know that God is good. The answer has to be no because we know that God is good. So how do we harmonize this? Well, the way we harmonize this as believers is this. We don't know all the ways of God, but we do know that sometimes he does not use his power to stop certain things because there is a greater good that needs to be achieved. Okay, so sometimes he does not use his power. He does not use his power to stop certain things because there is a greater good that needs to be achieved. Well, how do I know that's true? Let's look at Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, there's a lot here, but I want to focus on one thing. God the Father allowed his son Jesus to pay the price for our sins, even after his son Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was so stressed out that he, he, he sweat blood. And he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And what that means is this. The cup represented the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus. Okay? So he's saying, Father, if it's possible, let me not go through this. But then Jesus said, not, your, not my will, but thy will be done. Your will be done, Father. So here's the thing. Did God the Father have the power to not have Christ go to the cross? Of course. But there was a greater good that needed to be achieved. And guess what? Incidentally, it worked out very well for us because the greater good that the Father wanted to achieve was salvation for all mankind. You see, when Jesus went to that cross, he was saving us. He was laying down his life for us. So God the Father could have stepped in and said no, but here's the truth. He is so good that he allowed that to happen for our benefit. So the answer is God is good. Okay, and sometimes he chooses not to use his power in certain situations in our life because he has a greater good in mind. Next, we learn that God is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. The passage says this in verses 3 and 4. He says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, God never sleeps. God never sleeps. And you know this. When you go to sleep, you have no idea what's going on, right? You have no idea what's going on. That's why when you need a surgery, they put you under, right? If you ever had surgery, you know this feeling. The last thing you remember is the anesthesiologist coming to you and saying, I'm going to give you a little medicine and you're going to go to sleep. Okay, and sometimes when you have a surgery, you, they might just say, you're going to go sleep. Next thing you know, you're sleeping. When you wake up, you probably, if, if you've had surgery, you might have even had this experience. When you wake up, you ask questions like, oh, when, when are you guys starting my surgery? And the nurses are all like, ha, 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 you're all finished up. You're in the recovery room. And you're like, what? All of a sudden, everything that happened, you had no idea what was going on. You miss it 
thankfully, because you were asleep. Well, there's two very important things that we need to understand about the fact that God never sleeps. Never sleeps, never slumbers. The first is he doesn't miss anything. There's nothing that goes on in your life that God does not know about. He's omniscient. Because he doesn't miss anything, he knows everything. That's omniscience. He knows everything. He knows everything that's going on. It's not like God is like, oh, I didn't see that coming, or I missed that, or when did that happen? That's never a thought in the mind of God. The second is that he doesn't need sleep. Now, this one's huge because it overlaps with omnipotence, all-powerful, right? God has so much power that he never needs to sleep. Because we all know this, sleep and rest is recharging us so that we're strong again, right? So that we can live, so that we can continue on. Well, God is so powerful that he does not even need to sleep to be recharged. See, we sleep because we need to be recharged, and God doesn't need that. In fact, God is the energy that holds all things together. Let's look at this. It says in Colossians 1.17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Because God can hold all things together, it shows his omniscience, right? Because it shows that he knows how to hold all things together, which reminds us that he knows how to help us in our time of need, no matter what that need is. Let me say that again. That shows he knows how to help us in our time of need, no matter what the need is. Next, we learn that God is omnipresent. It says, the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. You know what? When the Bible teaches that God is everywhere, that's what omnipresent means, God is everywhere. It is not teaching that God is in everything. That's pantheism. Okay, God, God is not in the tree. Okay, we can't look at a tree and be like, oh, don't cut down the tree because God's in the tree. Okay, that's not what the teaching of um, omnipresence is. It's teaching that God is everywhere. That means there's nowhere that you can go that God is not there. Okay. The scriptures do teach that God is everywhere and there is nowhere that we can go that we will be out of his sight. Later in Psalm 139, it's not on the screen, but in Psalm 139, I'll read it to you. It says this in verses 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? This is David asking a question to God. Then he says this. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. See, this psalm teaches no matter where we go, that God is there. Interestingly enough, I love this part. David says, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
Now, Sheol is actually an Old Testament term for the place of the dead. So basically, David is saying, even in death, God, you're there. But I think another implication here is David says, if I make my bed, which many of you have heard the term, right? You made your bed, now you have to sleep in it. And when someone says that to you, they are telling you in a very unsympathetic way that you have to accept the unpleasant consequences of your actions and decisions. They're saying, you did something wrong, you made your bed, you sleep in it, okay? That is not how God deals with us. Think about this for a second. That's not how God deals with us. Even when we turn our backs on God, and do something that is sinful against him, he is right there. He is there. He doesn't say, you made your bed, now you sleep in it. He says, come to me. Come to me. I'm here to help you out. I'm here to help you out. I want to forgive you. I want to renew you. I want to restore you. Remember, like we learned in Psalm 51, when David sinned, that's what God's saying. He's saying, come to me. He's not saying, you made your bed, now you sleep in it. He's saying, come to me. There are times, I will say this, there are times that if we're not willing to come to God, if we continue in our disobedience, the natural consequences of our sin, that's called God's passive wrath, we see that in Romans 1, will start to happen, okay? But God's attitude is not, you made your bed, you sleep in it. It's, come to me. I love you. I care deeply about you. I'm here. Omnipresence. I'm here. Now, finally, we learn that God is sovereign. That means God is in control. It says, the Lord will keep you from evil and he will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, the first part of this talks about protection. We talked a lot about protection in the Psalms. What I want to focus in on is the sovereignty of God, meaning God being in control. That's what he's saying. He says, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God is sovereign. That means he's in control. Ephesians 1:11 kind of drives that home. It says this, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I want to focus on the end of this verse, it says this, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means that God is in control. He works all things according to his will. Do you realize this, that God has an ultimate plan? That does not negate the fact that he's given us free will, but he has an ultimate plan. Now, here's what I want to do. Starting next Sunday, we're starting a new series that I mapped out and planned to preach heading into Easter last year, 2020. So you remember that? March of 2020? Everybody remembers March of 2020. You all know how that turned out. I had this series kind of all mapped out. It was, it, it, I had the series all mapped out, and all of a sudden, I find myself preaching a 13-lesson sermon series called Learning and Growing in Crisis from where? 
my backyard. Do you remember that? You tuned in every Sunday for 13 Sundays seeing me sitting out in my backyard. The series I planned to preach was called God's Plan. God's Plan. In this series, here's what we're going to do. We're really going to talk about God being in control, the sovereignty of God. So we're going to spend six weeks talking about the sovereignty of God, how God is in control, even though he allows us to exercise the free will that he gave us. You know, when I looked at this, I don't know if you could see this, but the little catchphrase on the bottom is based upon Proverbs 16, 9. It says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. I don't think there's a person out there listening, a person in this room or a person out there listening that doesn't realize that we can make plans, but they sure can change. This last year has shown us that plans can change all the time. So for the next six weeks, actually five weeks and Good Friday, we're going to look at God's plan, his sovereignty, being in control in our lives. Today, we're going to close with a song that is new, and it's actually based upon the psalm that we studied today, Psalm 121. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day. I'm thankful for each person that's either here at the church in this building or each person that's tuning in online or listening a little bit later. I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to help us keep our focus and attention on you and realize that you are a God who is there for us, who loves us and desires to help us no matter what situation we find ourselves in. We're thankful again for the fact that we can come together and hear your word and lift your name in praises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.